I'm Nick Anfield at the Sydney Centre for Language Research at the University of Sydney. And today I'm talking to Novi Jaina, who is Chair of Indonesian at the University of Sydney. Hi, Novi. Good morning, Nick. Uh, so Novi has been educated in Indonesia, uh, in Melbourne, and uh, has been educated not only in linguistics but also in literature and in politics, um, doing her MA at La Trobe and her PhD at the University of Melbourne and has been at the University of Sydney for more than a decade now, uh, running things at the Indonesian department, so therefore teaching Indonesian as well as carrying out research on Indonesian and uh, how it's structured and how it's used. So it's a great delight to be able to talk to you today about your work on Indonesian. So um, I just wanted to start out with the latest project that you've been working on, which is a book uh, that we can expect to come out fairly soon. So can you, you tell us about the new book project and what we can expect to see when it is published? Yeah, so the book is uh, called Signs of Deference, Signs of Demeanour, Interlocutor Reference and Self-Other Relations Across Southeast Asian Speech Communities, which I edited with uh, Jack Sidnall. Um, I should uh, acknowledge uh, the contribution of Luke Fleming from the University of Montreal and Jack Sidnall from Toronto, um, who help come up with the uh, uh, title. So I can't claim that uh, that was my own work. Um, so the book is the result of a, of a workshop that we held here at the University of Sydney in June 2019 on language and social hierarchy. So the workshop was sponsored by SIAC, Sydney South Southeast Asia Centre. Um, and um, we had uh, a bunch of people, and uh, you included Nick, uh, you presented a paper, right. um, and uh, also a chapter in the book. Uh, there are also people who did not present on that day, uh, but contributed to the book. And um, they are um, Joseph Errington from Yale University and uh, Charles Zuckerman who was uh, ARC fellow here, uh, who worked with you, um, Nick, uh, at the University of Sydney. So we, we have contributions from different people, including, of course, Jack Sidnall um, on Vietnamese and you, Nick, on, on Cree, uh, a, a language uh, uh, in Laos, and um, Joe Arrington on Javanese, Michael Ewing also on Javanese, but a different variety of Javanese, actually, um, and then we have uh, Sarah Lee, who uh, wrote about um, uh, Malaysian. Um, and then Jack, again, on Vietnamese. Um, uh, Charles Zuckerman on um, uh, friendship, actually, very interesting uh, <laughs> uh, chapter on pronouns uh, uh, that's uh, about uh, friendship in Laos. And then my own chapter was on Indonesian. Luke Fleming um, gives a, a kind of the broad look at different typology of, of uh, interlocutor reference in East and Southeast Asian um, um, communities. And yeah, we hope uh, that the book can come out this year. It's going to be published by NUS, National University of Singapore Press. Um, we very much look forward to it, uh, you know, being able to hold it in hand. <laughs> yeah, it's always, it's always wonderful to be able to hold the book in one's hands after the long period of writing and uh, production and so forth. 
Um, so with this book, of course, we will look forward to reading it and, and, uh, and talking about it when it actually comes out. Uh, but by way of preview of, of the book, the term interlocutor reference uh, is one of those technical jargonistic sounding terms. For people who are not linguists, uh, who might be coming in from the politics side or the literature side, how would you explain the topic of interlocutor reference as relevant to the the book and its chapters? Yeah, so this is um, a term that um, Jack Sidnall and Luke Fleming um, came up with, and um, this essentially refers to the ways that people refer to themselves, so in English using I and you, so refer to themselves and the addressee. Um, so our book is uh, focused on um, how uh, speakers and addressee do this in um, Southeast Asian languages, which is something that um, has been discussed in different um, uh, articles and book chapters, but uh, not really brought together here, uh, uh, like it is here as a volume, so that we can make some comments about um, the way that uh, languages actually have different systems for referring to uh, the self, I, and to the addressee. So we hope that this can make this can be a contribution to uh, studies on address, though, which is uh, you know the literature on address is huge. Um, um, by looking empirically at uh, languages in, in the Southeast Asian region. So perhaps we'll come back to the questions of what is special about the Southeast Asia region, but uh, I'd be interested to kind of dive into your own work uh, on Indonesian and on varieties uh, of language spoken in Indonesia. Can you tell us about your own, the sort of background of your own interest in research on uh, things like pronouns and uh, address terms and so forth in, in Indonesian? Yes, so this is, uh, yeah. <laughs> so my research actually uh, came about quite accidentally. So in 2006, uh, I published uh, an article on um, a variation in um, address. So I was invited to contribute um, uh, an article for a volume that was intended to be a fresh uh, shrift for uh, Professor Michael Klein. Uh, they didn't want it to be called a fresh shrift, so it was a special volume of uh, the Australian uh, the Australian Review of Applied Linguistics. And so my, uh, my article in that uh, volume was based on an analysis of uh, fictional data, so fictional from a novel and a pop uh, and a and a popular film. Actually, it was a teen film and a teen novel, essentially. So not based on real interaction. Nevertheless, I was able to make uh, some points about the way that people uh, change, uh, you know, chop and change from one form to another, and what that might tell us about uh, how people. Uh, in interaction, position uh, uh, themselves differently, or mm. they shift positions. So the nature of relationships uh, uh, change. How that can be signal through different forms, uh, uh, referring to I and you. Uh, so that was a, an exciting um, time, but uh, I didn't really uh, take much notice after that article. But um, you know, um, I kept on pursuing uh, the topic. And so uh, later on, uh, a couple of years later, in fact, um, I looked at um, um, a couple of uh, pronouns in Indonesian, just trying to understand how 
uh, people actually uh, uh, use different pronouns, not just uh, the way that they use, you know, this on this occasion and this form on this occasion, but how they might actually chop and change within, you know, even the same uh, utterance, the same kind of uh, uh, speech turn. So can you just um, clarify for those who might not be familiar with the the language or the languages yes. of the area. Yeah. Um, what 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 kind of a thing are you talking about? Or can you give can you describe the specific example or, or the specific system that you're talking about, where a person can can chop and change, as you put it, between using one kind of pronoun and another? So people are presumably familiar, or maybe familiar with European style systems, where uh, you know, like in French, you have two different pronouns for the second person. In English, we just have you, I suppose, um, you know, and you have these uh, European systems with two forms for, for you. One is in some sense more polite and the other some sense, you know, more uh, informal or something like that. Um, is that what the system is like? Can you compare the Indonesian phenomena that you're talking about to, to that or, or is there something more to it? Yeah, so Indonesian actually has not just two forms but several forms and what complicates the matter is that you get um, uh, borrowed forms. So, for example, what is now considered, I mean, people don't think about it when they use the, the pronoun saya, that's actually a, a borrowing from Sanskrit and aku is the indigenous Malay term. On top of that, you get borrowing from Hokkien, for example, and that, that was a, a kind of a place-specific um, so it was Jakarta speakers borrowing from Hokkien uh, via the Betawi language. The Betawi are indigenous uh, uh, group of uh, around, uh, who live around Jakarta, um, and then of course um, you know that spread across Indonesia. Not everyone would use it, but that becomes identified with Jakarta at the same time as people also use the pronouns Gue and Lu um, while not being Jakartans. But in addition to that. Uh, if you're a speaker of, say, Minang from West Sumatra, you would be using pronouns from that uh, language when you speak in Indonesian. But um, another point that I want to make is that, you know, we tend to kind of uh, by default think of people using pronouns when they refer to themselves and the addressee, uh, when in fact, um, and this is, you know, something that's been pointed out for Vietnamese by Jack Sidnell and other people have also written uh, something similar about Japanese and Korean, um, you know, kin terms are used a lot. So, um, in fact, uh, you know, someone almost, you can't address someone without using a kin term and name. So I can't possibly, uh, I had a I had a colleague here who is Javanese. I can't possibly say you using a pronoun with her. And I think that that's quite different from English where you, you know, you is the, you know, uh, uh, between inverted commas, the neutral form. So what for, what would you do instead when talking to your colleague if you weren't using a pronoun? So I would say because she's, uh, uh, yeah, because she's Javan, Javanese, uh, she's female. Um, so I would use mba, for instance, right? Mba and then followed by her name. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you... That and this is another complication, just because the the term comes from Javanese. It doesn't mean that you apply that always to Javanese people, or that non-Javanese cannot be addressed with that using that term. And but, what does that term mean? 
That means older sister. So older these sister. are kin terms uh, that that people use to address each other. Something that is uh, in the literature has been called fictive uh, um, uh, kinship. So they're not really your older sister, but you call them by that term because uh, you know it's a, it, it kind of uh, is the thing to do. <laughs> right, right. So that's an interesting situation where that you're describing where someone is speaking a certain language and therefore required to observe certain kinds of relationship um, that if you were speaking English would be bracketed out or sort of unmentioned. So um, I wonder how you feel about this kind of question that sometimes comes up. When you're speaking a language like uh, varieties of, of Indonesian or languages uh, like that, and you have to think about the kind of kin relations or the relations of hierarchy and so on. Uh, sometimes people describe that as being quite fraught or sort of quite complex, and and they sometimes report that speaking a language like English, where you don't have those kinds of sets of choices, you just you just use I and you and so on, that they feel somehow liberated by that or or kind of um, relieved from having to deal with those complications. Do you, can you sort of sympathize with that? Do you agree with that? Or do you think that that's, I mean, in your experience, that's not, that's not how you feel? Not at all. I don't agree at all. I mean, there has been an attempt, uh, and, and, you know, certainly this is not a conscious attempt. So, um, because people learning Indonesian has to come up with to confront this kind of complicate, uh, you know, complex system. Um, so to simplify it, uh, they just resort to this one pronoun that was basically coined in the 1950s in an attempt to create some, you know, through language, a more egalitarian society. So that the, the pronoun under uh, is being taught to students in high school as uh, and and you know they they are told this is the neutral form of you and so if you can't do that if you can't you know differentiate between calling someone mother or father or older sister then just use this one you'd be safe it just doesn't work because by doing that you actually you know push that person away uh, uh, nothing is neutral basically none of these uh, terms are neutral um, but having said that. Um, Early in the in the history of the of the nation, there was a conscious attempt to egalitarianize, if there is such a word, society by engineering the language, and hence this term, the pronoun, was created. And they were hoping that other you know other aspects of the language would follow, but of course that didn't happen. And now the pronoun under is basically found, you know, is used in uh, public announcements in in public contexts where you just don't want to personalize. But what the interesting thing is, even that pronoun, even that pronoun, being used recently, and this is something that I that I worked on another paper, uh, the Minister of Education addressing or, or you know uh, referring to all the teachers uh, across Indonesia with under, and yet at the same time, in that in a speech that he delivered, he tried to individuate them as being each one of you, each one of you under. Mm. And so under is not just, you know, uh, anonymous other, as Joe Arrington has, uh, uh, you know, put it. Uh, but in this particular uh, speech, certainly, 
that is very individuated and, and very personalized. And there you go. Even the pronoun, you just can't get away from that complexity. Right. But it's exciting. You mentioned that you started out getting into this field through looking at a fictional novel and a film. That's right, right yeah. Uh, so I think that raises an interesting question about the kinds of things that we study in linguistics and how we can compare the results that we get from different sources of data. So one view might be uh, that when you study a film or a novel that you're getting a faithful representation of how people talk in broader uh, set of contexts of society, everyday life and so on. Um, another view might be, no, that's a, you know, it's been written by someone, it's kind of uh, contaminated, if you like, by people's views about what language is like or what it should be like. Uh, so, you know, that's a second view which would say, if you study novels and, and films, you're actually studying something quite different from what happens in real life. So, I mean, I'd be interested, firstly, what do you think, how different do you think that those sources of data are? When you, when you look at a film or a novel, how close is it approximating what you see in, in everyday use of language? Yeah, this is a really, really interesting question because um, there is something that, uh, you know, people, back to Aristotle, talking about mimesis, right? So something can be mimetic or non-mimetic. And so uh, uh, recent debates actually on, on what is called fictionality um, is trying, you know, uh, particularly that there is a group of scholars from, from Europe or Scandinavia um, who are trying to show that people actually use fictionality to do something in real interaction, so for, for different purposes. But um, let me tell you, you know, that the, so my thinking around this has, has changed over the years. So initially, um, yes, we knew that that was fictional, film and, and novel, and yet it just felt so real because that is what fiction does, right? Trying to, to kind of evoke some, some emotion or some, some sort of impression of, of something being kind of uh, very mimetic. Um, so at that time, um, I tried to account for it in terms of what the author does. So this is what the author created. Right? Mm. Uh, so they're trying to do this thing and that thing. But, um, I think in, more recently, um, my thinking is, is very much influenced by, by the argument that um, fiction is actually quite different. And one thing that, that is different is that you don't get to, to, uh, to delve into the minds of real people in the same way that you do with fictive, fictional characters. Mm. So when you write, you know, a, a, a novel, um, your characters, you, you, you delve into their minds, you create their minds, as it were, but you can't do that with real people. And that's, that's telling you that there's a real difference between fictional interaction and real interaction. Nevertheless, what, we try, what, what the uh, recent uh, 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 research is trying to do is uh, to show that fictionality is something that people use, draw from, to do different things in interaction. So that's where the interface comes in. 
I think. Yeah, so have you ever interviewed authors and writers about this topic and asked them about their kind of meta-linguistic control over these types of uh, tools that speakers have? Yeah, so I, I did um, uh, an interview with several uh, authors, actually, of teen um, literature, and um, something that was very interesting, and, and this is very much tied up with uh, that time, that historical uh, period in Indonesia, just on the cusp of uh, democratization at the beginning of 2000. So their concern was very much with uh, safeguarding the language. And this was because, you know, the, the crumbling of, uh, not really crumbling of the, the institutions, but the, the regime that was there and tied up that regime was very much tied up with the, um, with the setup of the uh, language agency, you know, where they did language engineering, language prescription and so on. And all of a sudden people felt, yeah, they don't have the sole authority anymore. And so, you know, there, there, there were so many young authors basically writing in, in what uh, language gatekeepers, people who are really, really concerned about standard Indonesian, would say uh, called jumbled language, unstructured language, and so on. But uh, in my interviews, they uh, talked about this a lot, safeguarding the language, at the same time as they were talking about, you know, being able to experiment you know, that sense of freedom that they could do this and that. And so you get um, the use of pronoun, and this was a pronoun, not a kin term. And that was really out of this world, you know. In, in this one story, a five-year-old boy was talking to his older sister using ankao to, to refer to her. Ankao is, is a form that is that is used in pop lyrics, pop song lyrics, and in literature, basically very standard, you know, literature that's written in standard Indonesian. Uh, and so this this is playing around with fictionality hmm. um, in fiction. <laughs> so um, again, you know, so, so fictionality is not just, you know, an idea that that uh, something fictional is used, you know, to, to say something in real life. Fictionality is also something that people use to create a fiction itself. Mm. Uh, so I think I would say something about maybe like double fictional <laughs> in that sense. But yes, it's very interesting. So I can imagine that authors would have a few different motivations for how they use pronouns and sort of kin term references and so forth. I mean, just gathering from what you're saying, um, one might be to use, to play with those things for sort of expressive effect and, and, and do weird things insofar as it serves their uh, expressive interests as authors. But I can imagine also two other kinds of things they might want to do. You know, you mentioned protecting the language or sort of maintaining the language. They could have a sort of a prescriptive uh, motivation that they want to, you know, maintain the language the way it is. Um, another might be sort of not unrelated, but to say, I want to reflect the truth of how the language is actually spoken, even if that doesn't, you know, I look around me in life and I notice that people don't speak the way that the school books say they have to speak, but I want to represent that, right? I mean, that's like a descriptive position, which is what linguists are taught that we should be doing, not obeying what the dictionary says, but actually going out in the world and finding out uh, 
you know, what would be a faithful representation of how people actually speak. Do you see a tension there? Do you think that the authors, uh, you know, when they're considering how to write with pronouns that they're somehow torn between those two tensions, that they're trying to preserve the language on the one hand and, and sort of reflect its dynamicity on the other? Yes, and this is very much reflected in the... Um uh, in the popular novels that I've studied, and um, their style of writing has been criticised a lot by educators as as being, you know, really bad language, really bad language, um, because it it departs from um, high literature, if you if you like. Um, and what one could say that. This is indeed the nature of popular literature. So you, you've got here the, the issue about the separation between serious literature and, and popular literature. But I think what we also find in this um, uh, adolescent literature is not just, um, say, for example, colloquial language, which you know, can be said to, uh, you know, repre- to be representing an attempt to uh, mimetically <laughs> to reflect the, the uh, language use, you know, that in real interaction. Um, um, but what we get is really quite a, um, quite a mix, quite a mixture between that and what seems to be a desire to, to remain true to, to the language of, if you like, there is a language of literature, more, more kind of standard, more poetic. And what is more poetic, uh, uh, it seems to be, um, language that is rendered in standard Indonesian. Hmm. And so the place of colloquial Indonesian is out there as representing the speech of of uh, of young people. And then, you know, oh, but if I tell you, if, if narrate uh, a situation where people are not speaking, then they just go back to standard Indonesian. But, it, you know, the separation is not that clean. And so the Tension, yes, you could see it in, you know, empirically in the work itself. Um, but um, I just want to mention one example in which um, the film that was released in 2001, and this is, uh, you know, essentially a love story, um, but uh, it was hugely popular for uh, cultural historical reasons. That's, that's another issue. But the, the filmmaker uh, seriously, very kind of uh, uh, kind of carefully um, considered the use of language. Uh, they wanted it to be a true reflection of how young people in Jakarta speak. Mm. And so what you get is very much a colloquial Jakarta speech. Um, and to me that was interesting because uh, I'd never heard, you know, certainly people, you know, uh, look at dialogue and see whether that that's uh, realistic. But this was an attempt to really represent uh, interactional language. Hmm. And so you get that tension where someone, you know, some people really tried to do that. You know, uh, you know the, the degree of success was, was evidenced in, in the way that people, you know, talked about it, talked about it in terms of the language in that film, not just about the, the, the storyline. And then you get the teen literature where they had to observe certain things because obviously a novel is not just a dialogue, even though there are novels like that that just consists of a, a, a dialogue. So I find it fascinating that there is this kind of moral dimension to 
Uh, I mean, you've been talking in general terms about the kind of language that is used in these uh, novels and films, but but we're talking specifically about choice of person reference and, and, for example, in pronoun choice. So I find it fascinating that there is this kind of moral discourse around, you know, this literature is, is bad language and so forth and, and presumably, you know, shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be circulating among our youth and so forth. Um, you know, so it's interesting to compare it, I think, to other sort of morally charged discourse around pronouns such as what's going on at the moment in English. So there's a lot of discourse at the moment about pronouns um, there, there has been for a long time because, of course, they're gendered, uh, you know, and we've had the, the, the discussion about, you know, issues with he and she as pronouns in English and whether he is sort of overused to, to uh, or used as a default when it shouldn't be. Um, and then, of course, more recent kind of discussions around pronouns to do with stipulations that we should respect people's choices to to not be referred to using gendered pronouns and so forth. So we're seeing a kind of a public discourse around this question, which is essentially a grammatical question, which which pronoun am I going to select? Um, but the discourse shows it's clearly not just a grammatical question. Um, so those, those kind of moral stances that people are taking from the uh, Academy of Proper Language or whatever it is in Indonesia, is that spilling over into public discourse? Do people sort of go around with uh, moral stances about what pronouns people use when they talk? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, they do. Um, so the, the, there's a lot of uh, complaints uh, from uh, um different groups of people, lecturers, when students uh, use particular pronouns to refer to themselves, not so much to, ref uh, to refer to their lecturer because they use kin terms, right? So that, that's uh, 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 kind of um, uh, a bit more stable. But um, referring to themselves using one particular pronoun, aku, which was, um, you know, I wrote in, in an article in uh, 2008 that this was uh, very much identified with uh, individualism, not individuality or individuating, but individualism. And at that time, it was being seen as, as something that's undesirable. But now everyone is using it, including the uh, people uh, in education themselves, uh, you know, the educators themselves. Um, but when it's, um, when you get asymmetrical uh, role relationships, such as a lecturer and a student, then you know, that's when such complaints come up. Other times, it's, so it's not really, sometimes it's not really just the form itself, but when it comes to uh, interaction between people in asymmetrical role relationships. Um, so that gets talked about a lot. But mm. um, another example is uh, what's happening in with, with Indonesian is you get... Um, old forms, so Malay forms, 
being resuscitated and being given a new meaning, you know, very cool, trendy. Um, so, for example, it's trendy now to be called Abang, Abang, which is from Malay, older brother. Mm. Um, so that is replacing uh, uh, the Javanese form, mas, which used to be the the uh, form. And so being called Bang is almost, oh, you're, you're you know, uh, as my colleague described it, gaga, handsome, you know, very attractive. Mm. Um so you see that a lot, um, uh, you know, you see people use that um, kin term a lot in political talk. So someone who used to be referred to with father is now being referred to. They're getting young. They're being referred to with abang, you know, or bang, just bang. Hmm. Um, so that's been interesting that, that, that the old forms are being given a new life and being given some sort of honorable place in, in everyday uh, interaction. Right. So it really demonstrates the, the, the dynamic, ever-changing kind of status of the system. Um, it, it's, it's, it's good that you bring up the reference to political talk because I wanted to turn to that and ask uh, about your work. So, you know, you We've just been talking about fiction and, and, and film and so on and the representation of, of language choices in those kinds of settings. Um, but you've also worked on political discourse and how pronoun choice and person reference works in those kind of settings. So can you tell us about that work? Yes. So my interest in, in uh, political discourse actually um, uh, started quite a, quite some years ago when I did my master's in um, in at La Trope, and I wrote about uh, the metaphor, use of metaphor, and the um, speeches of Indonesia's first president, uh, Sukarno. Um, my recent work is very much looking at um, the way that political uh, agents, uh, polit- politicians, activists, kind of talk to each other and um, how they. Uh, signal their different kind of ideological positions. Um, and those signals, um, you know, you can see those signals as being um, kind of, they use kin terms or pronouns. Um, and from different languages, not just uh, Indonesian languages, as in, you know, langu- uh, including the borrowed terms, but also English, quite interestingly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so what I'm trying to do here is trying to understand um uh political dynamics not through political theory but through um language and most particularly uh, uh particularly um the use of kin terms names and pronouns and so this is interesting because you have pronouns being uh mainly used when people are contrasting their positions or trying to hold someone to account so can you kind of give an example to flesh out that idea. So aren't we just using pronouns all the time? In in what sense am I able to use a pronoun in Indonesian political discourse to to do the kinds of things you're describing? Yeah, so uh, it's a very interesting example from a recent interview, actually, between a very senior uh, journalist interviewing Indonesia's current president, um, uh, Jokowi, who... um, is you know hugely popular, but he's been criticised a lot because of the, of Indonesia's seemingly slow response to the to the um, uh, pandemic, and so um, uh, you know the the, the high uh, number of uh, uh, people being infected is is basically uh, uh, due to that 
slow response, so people say. And so in this interview, you know, at the beginning of the interview, the the journalist uh, very, very politely uh, referred to the to the president using the kingdom, oh, Bapak Presiden Jokowi, the father, president, and then name. And repeatedly, you know, she would say, you know, Pak Jokowi, Bapak Presiden, you know, father, president. None of this is is unusual. Yeah, he is he holds the uh, uh, high office and so on. And then, um, not long after the the interview started, she then said, um, uh, "I want to ask you now about you know the government's uh, response to the pandemic. Why are we finding this? You know, why are the different provinces basically uh, having to fend for themselves? What's the central government doing?" And right at that moment, it was the pronoun under, the impersonal under being used for the president. This is really unheard of in, you know, in, in, uh, say, 1970s, 1980s, where the president would be, um, referred to just with, with, uh, uh, the title of office president and a kintum baba, of course, or ibu, actually. We've had a female president, so that would be ibu, uh, meaning mother. But again, we, we can see here that pronoun is being used when just at that, that moment in, in, uh, in the interview where there is a very delicate but the journalist really wants to <laughs> uh, come in and say, why did you do this? Mm, uh, so uh, this is a, it's a beautiful example of somebody being able to draw on the resources of their language for a right, quite yes. subtle... Uh, or maybe not so subtle in this case, uh, <laughs> kind of function. And I want to ask you, what does this tell us about the kind of relative functionality of different languages? So that what you've just described is something that, you know, is available to speakers of this language and, and you know, those resources are there. If the interview was happening, uh, let's say, in English, yeah. Uh, to what extent do you think similar moves could be made and, and, and would they be made with different choices of person reference or would they be done with other sorts of um, resources or would they would you just not have that sort of t- type of expression available? Yeah, so at the moment I'm trying to understand that, that very um, difference um, because certainly uh, in um, Australian interviews, you know, um, um, there is something that, that's been written about is the way that politicians uh, address, not not refer, but address uh, the journalist uh, by name and the journalist refer, uh, address the politician by title um, and name. Um, uh, and so that, that there's that, you know, kind of indication of asymmetrical relationship. Um so my sense is that this, the you know, the texture of the interview, if you like, uh, in, if it's in English, it would be indicated differently. Um, but um, something that I <laughs> uh, I need to to do a bit more research on this. But I think the use of kin terms in Indonesian interviews uh, gives you a different effect because. It's almost like saying, I, I respect you, uh, but I want, now I want to hold you into account. So there, there is that, that, that kind of a temporal point in the interview where you, you switch 
or, or you, you kind of convey a different kind of uh, uh, position, right? Or, or you, you treat your addressee as someone in a different role or different status. But in English, um, it would have to be, to be kind of uh, uh, indicated differently or, or the dynamics would be quite different, I think. So I imagine, I mean, I, that certainly would be true, that dynamics would be different. I, I'm, I was going to say I imagine that in English you'd have a different set of options, obviously, but you would still have a set of options. You know, you'd yes. be able to say, you know, Mr. President or Sir or, right. you know, use the name um, and take different kinds of person reference forms to fit differently with different kinds of stance. Do you think that would be a universal thing in human language? I mean, can you imagine a human language that doesn't provide for that type of, you know, uh, strategic selection of person reference in interaction? It would seem inconceivable that, that, that you know, different languages don't have that. The resources would be different, but people would need to I would imagine in, in any kind of political, institutional uh, context would need to indicate different things or say different, you know, indicate different positions, taking different stances. Um, what would be interesting, I think, in uh, the kind of smaller groups, uh, linguistic groups in Indonesia, where they've been claimed when I talk to people or they just use mainly pronouns. Um, so we need to do a lot more work in this area to understand how, for example, in traditional meetings, um, people can convey these this different stances and, you know, using, if, if the resources are mainly pronominal, for example, um, how do you do this? Um, I don't have that answer for now. Mm. <laughs> There's still a lot more work that needs to be done uh, on, you know, different languages uh, in Indonesia. So one of the big differences between those languages would no doubt be population size. That's right, yes. Um, perhaps the amount of written communications that occur in that particular language. Yeah. I mean, there are hundreds of languages spoken in Indonesia, right? So do you know about the kind of diversity in person reference forms within Indonesia and, and then... Secondly, I mean, how does that position what you are finding out about the Indonesian case to study of this, these kinds of phenomena around the world? Yeah, so um, there is actually work that's coming out by Joe Errington looking at um, uh, people or communities in eastern Indonesia and part of that work centres around the use of pronouns um the not much is understood at the moment within the context of Indonesia because most uh, work has been on Indonesia and and it has been pointed out that you know um uh, there's loan words and and that people use different you know terms from different uh, regional languages or ethnic languages I, I prefer to use um but yeah not 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 much so I can't really tell you much beyond uh people speaking Indonesian. Right. Uh, but that's the next step to actually start thinking about that. Um, however, there are colleagues who have worked on Javanese. Um, but I think within the context of Indonesia, I think what's interesting is 
the multilingual situation, what that does um, on, um, you know, whether that adds to to the complexity of the, the use of the resources there are, um, whether um, that, you know, they, they, that's, I don't know, I, I don't quite... I don't quite know at this at this stage, you know, what the picture is like, because it's it's really murky. And um, the data on on smaller languages at the moment, uh, I don't think that they much of that includes interactional data, and that that's part of the difficulty. So what you get is uh, descriptive grammars. There there are some narrative uh, discourse, but narrative discourse uh, often is. Um, um, a story, basically a monologue. Um, there is the um, Max Planck uh, data that that's stored on Jakarta Indonesian and some other languages. So I look forward to uh, to um, finding out a bit more. But uh, I think um, you know uh, Indonesia could make uh, a really nice example if we uh, we can understand a bit more because of the sheer uh, variety and diversity of of the languages there are uh, in that region in that area, then uh, maybe we could say something a bit more about um, uh, reference in other languages. But certainly also work in Japanese and, and Korean, um, uh, we should refer to as well. Yeah, I think it's a really important point that you make about the kind of data that we have from the average language uh, and especially languages that are underrepresented in our knowledge. So, you know, languages spoken by smaller numbers. The average kind of, you know, grammar of an indigenous language or, you know, ethnic minority language would indeed, as you, as you say, not include that type of conversational data. Um, so from my point of view, thinking about the contribution I made to your uh, book that's coming out, Looking at the Cree language, which is spoken by just a few hundred people in Laos and is not written, you know, there aren't films or novels that you can look at and, and there isn't that kind of public political discourse. If you did a description of the language, you would, for example, include the fact that there are dual pronouns, you know, pronouns that, that single out, uh, not singular and not plural, but two. Uh, but... If that's all you said, that would be a very, uh, well, it would certainly not be the full story because the way in which those pronouns are mostly used is in, maybe not mostly used, but very often used in relation to very specific kind of kin relationships. So dual um, obviously refers to, for example, a married couple and that term gets used in these kinds of very hyper uh, polite situations when talking to one's in-laws and so forth. Yes, I, I very much <laughs> like that that uh, point you made in that uh, uh, in that chapter, um, because you said that you know uh, there's a couple that the, the father-in-law might just be you know would refer to the couple as a couple, not as you know the daughter and the and the son-in-law. Yeah, uh, yeah. Really so in the system, the the son-in-law has to refer to himself as we too. Not you know I as one I, uh, when when he's he's speaking with his parents-in-law, uh, so th there is this kind of richness which I think is very it resonates very much with what you, you've been describing that we would never be able to see if we didn't have uh, the kind of interactional data that that 
that, that you're looking at and that uh, many of your colleagues are looking at. So it's really going to be exciting when the book comes out. Um, you're not only, of course, covering Indonesia in that volume, but other languages and other parts of Southeast Asia. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it will make an impact in terms of people's research on this this topic around the world. So I, I look forward to talking to you again when that uh, when that comes out. Just one more thing I want to ask before we finish, what is next for you then? At this stage, you know, you've done this volume, it's, it's coming out, um, but as you've been pointing out, there's a lot more work to do in this domain. So uh, what are your upcoming projects going to be? Okay. So uh, a couple of things. Um, conceptually, um, I'd like to pursue this area of, of inquiry. So um, how people use fictionality, as I mentioned, you know, in fiction itself. Um, so the, the, the current uh, argument is that people in, in everyday interaction uh, would use fictionality, and that, that's very common in political uh, speeches, political talk. But uh, as I mentioned before, even in fiction, it seems to me, you know, that there is authors use fictionality to create fiction, if you like, you know, and, and you can say, well, that's just for expressive purposes or just being uh, a creative. But I think to be a bit more systematically and, and theoretically talking about that uh, would be interesting. And in relation to that, to bring together um, my work on, on political discourse uh, with the argument that that's been raised about fictionality so that uh, you can say, for example, that um, this use is not just being creative but actually just making a point. Yes, making a point, we know that, but how do people make a point by drawing on fictionality? How do they do it and what does it do? And and within the broader context, why those particular uh, uh, terms that they use what does it do? So, you know, why why did this speaker use Jakarta uh, uh, forms, for example, and not some some from some uh, small language in Flores? So that the, there are broader social issues to be explored there. Um, yeah, so that's one. And the other is more empirical um, to actually look at the smaller languages, so non-Indonesian languages. Um, what what are people doing <laughs> with uh, with person reference? That would be very exciting, and um, I very much draw a lot of inspiration from the work of uh, Jack Sidnall um, on Vietnamese. That's very important, and your work on Cree. So, looking forward to uh, you know uh, learn a bit more from uh, other languages, from other people who are working on uh, uh, Southeast Asian languages. Well, I look forward to seeing all of this work develop and. Uh just want to say thank you very much, Novi Jaina, for coming and uh, talking to me today. Thanks for having me, Nick.